0: I'd like you to take your Bibles, if you would, please, and turn on me to the book of Ecclesiastes, chapter 12. Ecclesiastes, chapter 12. This will be the last time I'm going to be asking you to turn to this book for a while. So um, at this point, your Bible maybe automatically opens to Ecclesiastes 12. Come February, it will need to get used to opening automatically to Matthew. But we're going to look in Ecclesiastes 12. And while you're turning there, let's uh, sing this simple little chorus uh, with me. Will you sing it
1: with me? O come, let us adore Him. O come, let us adore Him. Oh come, let us adore Him, Christ the Lord. For He alone is worthy. For He alone He alone is worthy. Christ the Lord. We'll give him all the glory, We'll give him all the glory, We'll give him all the glory.
0: Show that a little bit longer because I want to think about those lines. Michael, put them down. It'll be there. (laughs) Think about when we sing this. What are we really saying? What are we What are we saying when we sing this? Clearly, uh, we're affirming that Christ is the Lord. Right. That's the most obvious part of this line. These lines. He is supreme over all things, and he has the absolute right absolute right to rule as sovereign over our lives. He is. Lord, And he alone is worthy of being Lord. There's no one else who can lay claim to the supremacy of Jesus Christ. He alone, and because of that supremacy, we will give him all of the glory and will praise his name forever. And this is not just on his part a power grab, no. He is worthy of it, and he is worthy of not just our obedience as Lord, but our worship. He's the one to be adored, to be treasured. He's not just mighty in power, he's beautiful in his person. This is language of the highest order. And as Christian people, we believe it's true. We sing songs like this all the time. Uh, If you were to sing this song about anyone else, it would be laughable. No one else deserves this level of supremacy. Oh, come let us adore him. Gee, Joel, the Lord. That would be terrible. If you were to give anyone else this level of authority in your life, it would be disastrous. Now I'm done with the screen, Mike. I recently read what C.S. Lewis said about democracy. Listen to what he said. This is from his book called Present Concerns. He says, I am a democrat. He lived in England. He's not talking about the Democrats or the Republicans. He's talking about being a Democrat, a proponent of democracy. He is a proponent of democracy. I am a Democrat because I believe in the fall of man. I think most people, Lewis says, are Democrats for the opposite reason. A great deal of Democratic enthusiasm descends from the ideas of people like Rousseau, who believed in democracy because they thought mankind so wise and good that everyone deserved a share in the government. The danger of defending democracy on those grounds is that they're not true. Rousseau, wrong. I find that they're not true without looking further than myself. I don't deserve a share in governing a hen roost, much less a nation. The real reason for democracy is just the reverse. Mankind is so fallen that no man can be trusted with unchecked power over his fellows. Aristotle that said that some people were only fit to be slaves. I do not contradict him. But I reject slavery because I see no men fit to be masters. Except Jesus. He is fit, he alone is fit. He alone deserves glory forever, and we sing songs like this, and we talk about him all the time. That's what we do on Sunday mornings. But let's be honest: at every other moment of our lives, we struggle to live as if it's true. I know I do. The evidence, the evidence in my life of my unwavering—or sorry, my wavering—commitment to the supremacy of Jesus is apparent all the time. It 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 comes out in the words that. that fly out of my mouth and the thoughts that race around my mind and the the envies and the greeds and the desires that splash up out of my heart. We affirm Jesus is supreme over all things and we forget him all the time. This is an insidious form of spiritual insanity. It's a little bit like living as if gravity doesn't exist or gravity doesn't matter imagine that you are out uh, hiking, you're, you're on your favorite trail in the woods, and you come to a gorge, and there used to be a bridge there, there's supposed to be a bridge there, every time you've come there before, there's been a bridge, it's 30 feet across, the gorge is 40 feet deep, where's the bridge, your friend says, and you say, well, it doesn't matter, we'll just jump, <laughs> jump, jump, he says, are you kidding, uh, uh, it's too far, you can't jump, you'll never make it, gravity will keep you from making it all the way across, and you say, Gravity schmavity. So, and you jump, not even a running start. It's the standing long jump for you. And you make it about six feet, which is good considering how out of shape you are. But inevitably you fall. And you don't even have a moment to think about your folly like Wiley Coyote. You just fall, you drop like a rock. Living as if gravity does not exist has immediate and painful consequences. Living as if Jesus does not exist does not have always as immediate consequences, but they are much more painful than a fall into a 40-foot gorge. It's the epitome of spiritual insanity. To help us remember that, uh, we're going to spend a few minutes in the last six verses at the end of Ecclesiastes, verses that are here, They're apparently added by a later editor, maybe not, but most likely, and they're here and they're meant to help you value and remember what the author of Ecclesiastes, the teacher, has been getting at. It's clear that's his goal. Look at verse 13. It says, now all has been heard, here's the conclusion of the matter, here's the whole book summarized in just a few words, fear God and keep his commandments. Fear God and keep his commandments. That's direct, it's memorable, it's clear, and it's a summary of what we've been studying for the last three or four months. Let's read the whole section before we we go any further, and then I want to talk about this conclusion and why it's structured the way it is, and then I want to see if I can help you understand it more clearly and apply it more consistently. So uh, let's read Ecclesiastes 12, verse 9 uh, to 14. Follow along as I read. Not only was the teacher wise... But he also imparted knowledge to the people. He pondered and searched out and set in order many proverbs. The teacher searched to find just the right words. And what he wrote was upright and true. The words of the wise are like goads. their collected sayings like firmly embedded nails given by one shepherd. Be warned, my son, of anything in addition to them Of making many books, there is no end, and much study wearies the body. Now, all has been heard. Here is the conclusion of the matter. Fear God and keep His commandments, for this is the duty of all mankind. For God will bring every deed into judgment, including every hidden thing, whether it is good or evil. This epilogue, this conclusion, seems to be divided into two different sections. Verses 9 through 12 focus on the teacher's skill, And verses 13 and 14 are about the teacher's message. Let's take them one at a time. Let's talk first about his his skill. I'm told that many ancient books, particularly those that would have been copied about the time of a book of Ecclesiastes, have um, epilogues like this or conclusions like this that are added by the scribes who are copying and collecting the books. Uh, They're meant to uh, commend the author to you, to make a case as to why you should read this book. You're familiar with this. We do this in books today except we print them on the back. So let's say you're wandering around a book sale uh, uh, or a bookstore and you come across a book. You don't know the author. You've never heard of him before, but the cover looks interesting. So what do you do? You flip the book to the back and you look and you read what the book says uh, about the author. Jack Jones is the author of seven best-selling mysteries. He was a detective in the New York City Police Department for 14 years. Oh, this guy's got experience. He is a graduate of Columbia University Law School. Now he's got education. All right. And he's a family man. Jack lives with his wife and three kids in Cape Cod, Massachusetts. Now, you have to determine at that point in time, is this biography the sort of biography that would make me want to buy and read this book? Maybe you'll think about Jack's three kids and how they need braces and college tuition. and So you, you buy this book and, and, and read it. Now, how about the one at the end of Ecclesiastes? This teacher was wise. And then it continues with his career. So, these commendations like this, common uh, in books like this in the ancient world. I wonder, though, too, if this uh, ending here is a little bit, is there because the editor of Ecclesiastes knew that we might be a bit shell-shocked after reading the book of Ecclesiastes. What is this book? This is not like anything else we've read in the whole Bible. Sometimes it's beautiful. Remember, there is a time for everything and a season for every activity under the heavens, a time to be born and a time to die, a time to plant and a time to uproot. That's a beautiful poem back in chapter 3. Sometimes the the teacher is profound and deep and faithful and deeply spiritual. He says, guard your steps when you go to the house of God in chapter 5. Go near to listen rather than to offer the sacrifice of fools who don't know they, are, they do wrong. So sometimes the teacher is beautiful, sometimes he's profound and faithful, and sometimes he says baffling things like, you're going to die, you're going to die, you better get ready for it. You're going to die. He says that over and over again. And he says things like, everything is meaningless. It's all a vapor. It's a mist. Everything is meaningless. There's nothing new under the sun. It's all tiresome and empty and pointless. And you read those sections of Ecclesiastes and you think to yourself, what is wrong with this man? Did his mother not love him enough when he was a child? What's wrong? So maybe the ending is here to remind you that what you just read is good and whole and worth the effort. You know, there's that old joke about the breakup line, it's not you, it's me. The editor of Ecclesiastes is saying, no, it's you. It's you. Right? This, is, this is a good book. This is a good book. He commends the teacher. Here's how I want to unfold the text. I want to look at these verses and offer a word or two of encouragement to the teachers that are in our church. We have skilled teachers in our congregation. I've been in their Sunday school classes. I've been in their Bible studies Uh, We all have an interest in them growing in their abilities. So if you teach the Bible in our church or somewhere else, look with me at this text and remember with me what makes a teacher a skilled teacher. Follow his example. And if you're not a teacher in our church, you sit under teaching. Pray that your teacher will pay attention, right? Here we go. First, work hard. Text says work hard. Teachers work hard. Look at how he describes his teacher's work. Verse 9, these verbs. He pondered. He searched out. He set in order many Proverbs. That word ponder is the word weighed. He, He took this wisdom and he weighed it to measure it, to see. Is this worth holding on to? Is this true? Is this good? He searched out. He, he was diligent and he was thorough. He searched everywhere for wisdom to see how if it was useful or not. Actually, um, there are sections at the end of the book of Proverbs where it appears, the book of Proverbs, that it appears that Solomon took some ancient Egyptian wisdom and gathered it together, corrected it a little bit, and included it in the book of Proverbs. He searched out. And then he... He set them in order. He arranged them. He organized them in order to teach them well. The teacher's wisdom is not automatic. It didn't come easily to him. He worked hard at this. Verse 12 talks about this too. Verse 12 is the theme verse of every seminary student I know. Of making many books there is no end and much study wearies the body. Oh... you so tired at the end of a day of studying? All you've done is sat there and read a book. You shouldn't be tired. What's wrong with you? Well, the teacher knows. It's hard work. It's hard work. So work hard. Second, think creatively. Think creatively. The text says in verse 9 that the teacher set out many proverbs. That's a broad word. It's, it's broader than we're used to when we think of Proverbs. We think of the book of Proverbs and those two-line sayings. But this word Proverbs here uh, refers to parables and poems and illustrations. Look at verse 10. It says, The teachers find searched to find just the right words. Just the right words. I think it was Mark Twain, I'm not sure, but I think it was Mark Twain who said, the difference between the right word and the wrong word is like the difference between lightning and a lightning bug. (laughs) There's there's work involved in making wisdom and making it sing to your students. Um, Actually, if you have an ESV, it might translate this a little bit even more helpfully here. The teacher searched to find delightful words, words that are Pleasing and, and helpful and beautiful. This should not surprise you that, that, that uh, the teacher would commend right words to us. Think about God when he called the world into existence. Doesn't, uh, doesn't God's creative work There's a variety of shapes and sizes and colors and textures in the world God made. And when you apply yourself to teaching God's word creatively, um, you are like God in that regard. One of my, uh, the, the president of Cedarville when I was there used to say to us, I heard him say it a thousand times I think, everything a Christian does should have quality stamped all over it. This is in keeping with God's own character and God's own work in what he does. Many years ago I read a book, two books written about the prodigal son, the story of the prodigal son in Luke 15, two books dedicated to them. One of them made the story sing and was a joy to read and the other was like reading an autopsy. Here's the story, I've killed it, I've cut it apart and dissected every piece. It was not a pleasure to read. The teacher, when he teaches, he makes wisdom sing. Jesus spoke like this. He did this work and he spoke like this. Here's an example from Matthew 13, 52. Look at it. I wrote it on the notes sheet. He said to them, Therefore, every teacher of the law who has become a disciple in the kingdom of heaven is like the owner of a house who brings out of his storeroom new treasures as well as old. Think of, think of this image. It's wonderful. This teacher bringing out new truths and old truths that are just, uh, and displaying them like treasures. I saw, maybe you did, but I saw on social media uh, this week a lot of people taking pictures of their dining room before Christmas dinner. You look at these beautiful tables that are all set um, uh, folded napkins, straight chairs, gleaming utensils, glistening white plates. Beautiful floral arrangements in the table. Everything was there, just arranged. A well-planned lesson is like a well-set table. It makes you hungry for the feast of wisdom and teaching that you're going to hear. Sometimes on on sermon writing days, I I begin, I, I, I take a piece of paper and I sit down and I write at the top, I start making a list. What, is, what did I learn this week when I was studying? All these things, just uh, rare, uh, uh, random facts. What sort of facts did I, did I learn? And then I look at my list and I think to myself, what's the best way to get all these facts across? What, so it's interesting and so it's compelling and helpful. What are the right words? You can be the judge of my success week in and week out. In fact, you are, let's be honest. My children are, I know that. They're some of my best and most brutal critics. I hear about it Sunday afternoon. That analogy did not work at all. Here's a version of a song you might appreciate. I did not write this, but it speaks to this challenge from the teacher. Oh, the sermon was simply frightful and the choir is tired and spiteful. Our hunger is starting to show. Let us go, let us go, let us go. Well, he doesn't show signs of stopping and our eyelids are slowly dropping. Oh, why do you torture us so? Let us go, let us go, let us go. When we finally get dismissed how we love to go out in the snow, but since pastor has six more points, when that will be, we don't know. Well, the sermon is dragging longer and the pastor is preaching stronger, but by now we're not listening, so let us go, let us go, let us go. That happens to everybody at some point in time. Skilled teachers study hard. They think creatively. They work hard to make sure what they say is just right. Howard Hendricks used to tell us it is a sin to bore people with the Bible. Third, think biblically. Think creatively and think biblically. Notice the balance in verse 10 how he does this. So the teacher searched to find just the right words, delightful words, and what he wrote was upright and true. He's both creative and he's truthful. Again, I'll quote Howard Hendricks, who was never a boring teacher. He said, it's not very hard to be biblical if you don't care about being relevant. And it's not very hard to be relevant if you don't care at all about being biblical but to be both biblical and relevant, that is the challenge. You could say the same thing about truthfulness and creativity. Now, one more word for those who teach the Bible. Remember what you're offering to people. Remember what you're offering them. Verse 12, we're going to start in verse 12 and work our way back up. Verse 12 says, Be warned, my son, of anything in addition to them. Be careful. Be cautious. Master what we have in the Scriptures and be cautious about what is outside of the Bible. What you find outside of the Bible may be useful. Um, All truth is God's truth. But it's not as trustworthy. It's not as rock solid as the Bible. He reminds us of in verse 11 about why that's true because the ultimate source of this is one shepherd. Their words of the wise... They're collected sayings by different people, but they're from one <coughs> shepherd. I think that's God himself. It's a reference to God himself. He also, moving even further up here, says that the words of the wise are like goads. Goads. A goad was a piece of wood with embedded nails in it that a farmer or shepherd could use to guide his sheep or his cattle to keep them on the path. He'd push them along with the goat. And, you know, goads hurt. Sometimes the words you use, God's words to people, they sometimes hurt. Uh, Just as an aside, here's how you can tell if you are really listening to what the Scripture says. If the Bible never contradicts you, if the Bible never stings, if it never pushes you, if it never convicts you, if it never calls your conduct into question, then you're not really listening to the Bible. Because sometimes the Bible is like a goad and it stings a little bit. I saw a cartoon recently with a man talking to his pastor at the end of the service at the back door and he said to him, Pastor, those are powerful sermons they're thoughtful, they're well-researched. I can always see myself in them, and I want you to knock it off. <laughs> the Bible is goads sometimes. When he says they're, they're like firmly embedded nails, maybe he's talking about the goad again. Maybe he has that in mind. Or maybe he's talking, I think more likely, he's talking about uh, uh, tent stakes. You, you pound them into the ground to hold your tent up and, and you put them in the ground well and hard and true and they keep your tent up secure and, and stable. So teachers, aspiring preachers, those of you who handle God's Word in front of God's people, go for it. Study hard. This is God's book. We believe it's God's book. Master it and then work hard to teach it well with creativity and with beauty. Don't diverge from the message, but think about the words that you use. When you're giving people the Bible, you're offering them correction and you're offering them stability. It's worth working hard to teach this book well. Now, having described the teacher's skill that way, the conclusion of Ecclesiastes moves on to a summary of what he said. This is not an easy book, you probably have questions about it. The, the teacher worked hard to put it together so it would be truthful and uh, provocative, but, but you still might have questions. So here is the message. If you boil Ecclesiastes down to its essence, here's what it's about. We read it once before, twice actually. Look again, verse 13. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the duty of all mankind. Fearing God is one of the most important uh, uh, concepts in the Bible, particularly in the section of Scripture that we're in, the wisdom literature of the Bible, Proverbs, Job, Ecclesiastes, Song of Songs. You, you you probably know that the emphasis of the text when it says fearing God, it's not so much on terror as if we're in terror of God, but uh, reverent respect, holding God in such high esteem, revering Him so completely that His Lordship, His authority is manifest in every area of your life, that, that you live all of life before Him, for Him, and unto Him. I don't consider myself, uh, by any stretch of the imagination, a cook, a good cook at all. I can make scrambled eggs really well and hot dogs. Those are my specialties. Um, uh, And uh, nor am I, in any stretch of the imagination, a baker. I don't like baking because there's too much of an art involved. There's too much subjective thing involved in baking. Um, How do you know that the dough is doughy enough or not doughy enough? Or do you add more flour? I don't even try. Except I have made brownies before from a box. Right, you know how you work, you open the box, and you put it in a bowl, and then you add some eggs and maybe some water, and you stir it around. But if someone taught you to make brownies, they will say to you very carefully, "Now you got to make sure that it mixes thoroughly, but not too much. Don't mix it too much, because if you mix it too much, you'll you'll ruin, uh, you'll you'll beat the ingredients to the point that the baking magic doesn't work." <laughs> I find that perfect balance nearly impossible to achieve. It would be easy for me if the instruction said, stir for 30 minutes, and I would do it. You just stir, stir, stir. You can keep going. All right, I got this. It's going, to be, it's going to be so mixed, it's unbelievable, right? No, if you stir for 30, you're going to ruin it. It's terrible. But when it comes to fearing God... Balance like that is not a concern. Take what you know about the supremacy of God and mix it, mix it into all of your life, every area of your life. Make sure it reaches every corner, every part. How you work and how you sleep and how you date and how you study and how you eat and what you say and what you watch and what you buy and where you go. Work the fear of God into every part of your life. Some of you, I can already tell, you do this. You have worked it into certain parts of your life. I can tell because you're here on Sunday mornings. Of all the things that you could be doing this morning, here you are. You've worked the fear of God into your Sunday morning schedule. You revere him and because of that you're here. But Ecclesiastes, the teacher, he's comprehensive here. You can see how comprehensive this vision of the fear of God is in verse 14. It applies to every deed and every hidden thing. Verse 14. Verse 13. Fear God. Why? Verse 14. For God will bring every deed into judgment, including every hidden thing, whether it is good or evil. Social scientists a few years ago released a study that said that the average person is holding on to 13 secrets. I don't know if that's true or not, but let's think about it. 13 secrets. Five of those secrets that you are holding on to, you have never told another person. And the study actually uh, looked at the physical and emotional toll that holding on to those secrets exacts. They, they asked people to think about their secrets and then walk a certain way, a, in a certain direction. And the people who weren't thinking about their secrets walked uh, uh, with greater ease and more grace than the people who were thinking about their secrets. It, 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 it affects you. Secrets are, are burdens that do not lighten the load of your life. And fearing God means acknowledging and recognizing the fact that there is nothing that is secret before him. Does that frighten you? What's gonna, what is God going to do with everything that he knows about you? There's nothing about you that he doesn't know. What's he going to do with that information? One of the reasons that you keep secrets is because you're afraid of what people will do with the information against you will they, well, they use it to uh, hurt you. Maybe they should. Sometimes people keep secrets of crimes that they have committed. They should be found out there should be justice. I bet that's not what most of you are afraid of, though. Most of you are afraid of mockery or scorn or rejection, judgment. If you really knew the real me, you wouldn't like me very much. So I have these things that I keep. What's God going to do with that knowledge that he has about you? Does God use what he knows about people to maliciously hurt them? Your answer to that question will reveal quite a bit about how you view him. It's worth thinking about. What's God going to do with all the knowledge that he knows about you? We're going to come back to that in just a minute. What's interesting here as we think about this passage is fearing God, the conclusion of the matter, is how Ecclesiastes and Proverbs compare to one another. Um, according to Proverbs, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. That, that's a phrase that appears all the time in Proverbs. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And teach, the teacher here says, at the conclusion, the fear of the Lord is the summary of his whole message. It doesn't matter. Start at the beginning when you're uh, thinking about life from the front side, when you're a young man or a young woman and you have potential galore. You know what's really important for you at the beginning? The fear of the Lord. Go through all of life, live a long life and have all the experiences of life and what you need uh, at the end in particular is the fear of the Lord. The fear of the Lord, as as the teacher demonstrates, doesn't he, if if we can go back and look at this, is that it does not mean that you always understand what God is doing. God does things that are hard to figure out. We can't understand all His plans. We don't have the ability to do that. If there was, is a God that you can completely understand, He is unworthy of your worship. Because you're not any smarter than He is. The question is, what are you going to do about the things that God does that you don't understand? Are they going to you be more important than the things you do understand about God? Have you thought about it this way? Your life is full of troubles. It's full of challenges and obstacles and problems that you don't understand. Things have happened to you. Bad things have happened to you. And you can't explain them. You don't understand them. You can't trace what might be going on, bad things have happened to you, bad things have happened to everybody in this room to a varying degree. They are part of your life by God's appointment. How does your confusion about those things stack up against what you do understand about God? Does the fact that you have cancer mean that God cannot possibly be as faithful as the rest of the Bible says He is? Does your bankruptcy mean that He is not as merciful as you have always heard He is? Has widowhood, has singleness made you reject the notion of God's goodness? Fearing God means in part that the mysteries of God's will are not enough to topple your confidence in Him. That you revere Him more than you are overwhelmed by the things in this broken world that you don't understand. Notice here in the passage, too, how he pairs fearing God and keeping his commandments. You demonstrate your fear of God by obeying him. That's how your reverence for God often manifests itself. Um, let's think about, the teacher does this all the time, so let's think about that first great act of disobedience in Genesis. Remember the offer that the serpent made to Adam and Eve? If Eve, you disobey God, if you eat the fruit, you will be like God. Throw off God, God's commandments, that's really the way to live. I mean, if you want a real life You just need to ignore what God says and do what you want to do. That's how to live a real life. It's how to really have power. It's how to really determine uh, what's good in your own life. Now, how did that work for Adam and Eve? Not very well. What Adam and Eve learned is that disobeying God does not make you more like God. It makes you less human. Not more divine, less human. Human. It introduces chaos and brokenness and pain. Fear God and obey Him. What a basic statement that is. Fear God and obey Him. But we forget it all the time. Let's finish by remembering how God responded in the garden to Adam and Eve and their fateful choice. Ecclesiastes says that God sees every hidden thing. Do you remember what God did or what Adam and Eve did when God came to walk with them in the cool of the day, they hid from God. (laughs) Why were they hiding from God? They were hiding from God because they were naked and, uh, and ashamed. They saw themselves in a new light and they didn't like it and God saw them too. He saw them wholly and clearly. They were hiding. You can't hide from God. What did God do when He found them? Genesis 3 says that God clothed them and covered their shame. They tried to clothe themselves with those fig leaves. Ecclesiastes would say, that's what most of life is like on this planet. Uh, We're we're trying to cover ourselves. So we spend money or we host a lot of parties or we work after getting famous or uh, 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 we want to our name to be everywhere. Fig leaves trying to cover ourselves. Ecclesiastes say that's what most of life on this planet is, human beings trying to cover themselves. It doesn't work. But God clothed Adam and Eve in costly garments. An animal had to be slain so that Adam and Eve could be covered. It's a scene in the Bible that foreshadows what God did through the Lord Jesus. He has covered us through the Lord Jesus Christ. When He died on the cross, He took our guilt upon Himself. He paid the price for our disobedience to God. He died and rose again. And the Bible invites us to turn to Him, to trust in Him, to find ourselves in Him, to be clothed, as it were, by our His own righteousness. Actually, God does something for us through Jesus better than just clothing us, right? He He cleanses us and He washes away our shame and then He clothes us in the righteousness of His Son. This is what God does to all who will believe. Remember this, with His supreme knowledge of you, nothing is hidden and therefore nothing is outside of the purview of His mercy. There's never going to be a moment in which God finds you and says, I didn't know that about you. If I had known that about you, Jesus wouldn't have died for that sin. Right? He knows everything about you. And what does He do with the knowledge that He has? He provides a Savior for whom nothing is outside of the purview of His mercy. It's what God does for those who believe. Will you take that mercy from Him? Will you you turn to Him? And then, because He already knows what's in every nook and cranny of your life, work into them reverence for Him. That's the end of this whole book. Fear God and keep His commandments. Let's pray, shall we? Father, we come before you this morning and we are thankful to you for this conclusion of the book because, Lord, we do confess that sometimes Ecclesiastes has been hard to figure out. Seems like this editor who wrote this ending seemed to know that too, that we would struggle with it at times. We are grateful to you, Father, that you have given this book to us. It is, we believe... Based upon your word, your own attestation of it, we believe it is full of wisdom and full of help for us in living life in this broken world. We thank you for the teacher and the work that he did, moved by your spirit to uh, plot and plan and study and ponder and order this book for us. Lord, we come before you. We are more impressed. More impressed that we are uh, with the the, uh, the way that this book is put together. We come before you because of its message and ask for your help. Lord, we confess. You know it full well. There's there's nothing about us you don't know. You know about the nooks and crannies in our lives, huh? Some of us are need to confess whole rooms and areas and uh, uh, county-wide places where we do not revere you. Lord, uh, please help us. Would you exalt your Son in our minds and in our hearts so that we adore him and recognize his worthiness to be the Lord and Master and supreme authority of our lives? Help us to work it in Help us to work in reverence for you in everything that we do and think and say. This is a high standard. We confess to you we need your mercy in fearing God and keeping your commandments. Help us. Help us to encourage one another as we sing and pray and teach and study your word together. Help us, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Amen.